Well, today we celebrate Independence Day uh, in America, the event in which we claimed freedom from the British monarchy in the year of 1776. Uh, and in that year, delegates from the original 13 uh, United States of America, they decided uh, that they wanted independence from the British government. They wanted to be their own nation. And it was a decision that changed the course of history. Our lives are different than what they would have been had these 13 original United States of America not decided they wanted independence from the British government. And so the, the, the Declaration of Independence, it coincides with the Revolutionary War, uh, another key monumental event in uh, American history. Now, the Declaration of Independence, it was formed, it was adopted, and it was signed all in the year of 1776. And now, the Revolutionary War is between uh, the, the British government and the American colonists who wanted to be free from Great Britain and uh, their monarchy rule over these colonies. And the Revolutionary War started in 17. 1775. So a year before the Declaration of Independence uh, was formed, adopted, and signed. Um, and I was actually not aware of this, that uh, in 1776, the Revolutionary War, it was really only just getting started. I don't know why, but kind of when I perceived the history of the Independence and the Revolutionary War, I thought the war started and ended before uh, the Declaration. I thought kind of the Declaration was the end of the war. But that's not the case at all. The, the war was just barely getting started. The Revolutionary War, it didn't come to an end until 1783. That's seven years after these 13 colonies decided that they wanted independence from Great Britain. You know, the, these colonies, they couldn't just say that they wanted independence. There was a price that needed to be paid for their freedom. And it was a steep price as well. According to Battlefields.org, throughout the course of the war... The Revolutionary War, an estimated 6,800 Americans were killed in action, an additional 6,100 were wounded, and upwards of 20,000 were taken prisoners. Historians believe that at least an additional 17,000 deaths were the result of disease, including about eight to 12,000 who died while prisoners of war. That, that is a very, very steep price for freedom. But ultimately, it was a price that these 13 colonies saw fit for their freedom. These were people who were willing to lay down their lives for this freedom that, quite frankly, you and I are able to enjoy here in the 21st century. People that we've never even met before. People that, long, that, that lived long before we were ever even a thought or a twinkle in our parents' or grandparents' lives. And so today in the 21st century, we, we no longer have to abide by the British law. We come up with our own set of rules as the officially United States of America. We live by our own standards that's independent from the standards of Great Britain. And so the same process of a group of people, uh, you know, kind of claiming independence from a foreign or, or a, the former group uh, is found in the Bible as well. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning is uh, where a, the process of a group of people living under a certain set of rules and then being free from those certain set of rules. And we're actually going to see this process play out twice in the same storyline with, with, with the same group of people. 
And so our story in the Bible, it starts in the book of Genesis. At the end of the book of Genesis, we are introduced to Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was the father of many nations. He was the father of the Jewish religion. That's where the Jewish religion started. It was with Abraham. And so Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was later uh, named Israel, that's where we get the term Israelites, he took his family, long story short, he took his family over to Egypt to live there as uh, there was a famine in the land. And so the Israelites, the people of Jacob, the, the Jews, they lived in Egypt for 400 years. Now, at first, they, they were treated uh, well. I mean, that, that was Jacob's family. His son, actually Joseph, rose to great power in the land of Egypt. So they started off on good terms in the land of Egypt. But after 400 years, somewhere along that time, the Egyptian nation started to treat these Israelites as slaves. And so their time to stay in the land of Egypt, their time to live under the Egyptian rule had come to an end. And so therefore, God used Moses to free his people from the harsh Egyptian rule. And that's exactly what Moses did. He was hesitant about it, but Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. And so they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were no longer under the, uh, the Egyptian rules or laws. You know, a very similar to the instance in which the 13 colonies claimed independence from the British rule. Now here we have the Israelites, the Jews, claiming independence from the Egyptian nation who treated them as slaves, who mistreated them, just like the British government mistreated the the colonists in in America as well. And so this is the first instance uh, in in this storyline of where a group of people leave a former set of rules and laws found in the Bible. So now, after this big group of Israelites left Egypt, they were wandering around in the wilderness with no set of rules. You can imagine how that would have played out. That would have been chaos. That, that would have been a big mess. It would have been mayhem as they were wandering around a big group of thousands and thousands of people with no rules. And so before long, God, through Moses again, gave the Israelites a set of laws to live by. And so in total, God gave the Israelites 613 laws to follow. And these laws are recorded in the Old Testament. Now, I can't say I've counted all 613, uh, but scholars uh, will, will claim, make the claim that there are 613 laws found in the Old Testament. So these are now the set of rules. These are the set of laws that the Israelites had to follow as a, a separate ethnic group from the Egyptian nation. And now today we may think, wow, 613, that, that's a lot of rules to follow. We, we may read these rules in, in like the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like, wow, God, that's a pretty uh, constrictive. But here in America, nobody's actually uh, sure how many federal laws we have, which I found surprising. Um, but I did a bit uh, of studying, and I saw ranges. This is from the internet. You, you find all sorts of crazy stuff on the internet. But I saw ranges from anywhere uh, 50. 15,000 federal laws to well over 50,000 federal laws that we have in America. And how those numbers vary so widely, I have no idea. Uh, But long story short, we have a ton, a ton of laws here in America. And the 613 laws that God provided for the Israelites, 
know, it comes out that, that hey, maybe that, that really isn't too much. So there's some context for you guys uh, to think about there. So now these 613 laws that these Israelites had, they weren't for God to, you know, assert his authoritarian uh, rule on these Israelites because he likes being harsh. No, the, these rules were set in place for their own good, for the specific society, for the specific group of people that lived around 1500 BC to 0 BC. These are the rules. These are the laws that the Jews had to follow for their own good. Just like when a parent tells their child, don't run into the street. Now, a child may perceive that as, man, my, my parent's a big old meanie. But, but really, the, the motive behind it is that the parent loves them. And the parent knows that this rule, this restrictive rule, is what is best for this child. And so God, he, he delivered these 613 laws to the Israelites for their own benefit, for their own good. And now of these 613 laws, you can categorize these laws into two different sections. You can categorize them as either a civil law or a moral law. Now, some scholars will categorize a law into three sections, moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. But for our sake today, we're going to lump civil and ceremonial laws together. So now what exactly is a civil law and what exactly is a moral law? So a civil law were rules that God put in place because of the current situation that they were in. These civil laws, they were not morally good and they were not morally bad. But they were put in place for their own benefit because of the surrounding context of their society. And so some examples of these civil laws were some foods were deemed clean and some foods were deemed unclean. Now, it's not morally wrong, it's not morally bad or morally good um, to eat different types of foods, but God made this a, a, a law because, you know, the, the Israelites back then, they didn't have the same technological or culinary advancements that we do today. And so some foods would have been harmful had they not cooked them properly. And so that, that is a civil law that the Israelites had to follow. There were civil laws about the certain festivals that they were to hold. And so these Israelites, the, the, these group of people, all the same family, they had different uh, memorials. They had different big events that happened to their family, like the Passover. The Passover went when God spared the Israelites in Egypt. There were laws about how they needed to celebrate the Passover. They had specific laws about the tabernacle, the, the place in which they worship God. And they had specific laws about sacrifices that the priests were to perform. And so I'd make the case that these are all civil laws. They are not either morally good or morally bad. These are laws that God put in place for the Israelites at that point in time because that's what the Israelites needed. They needed to stay away from these unclean foods. They needed to stay away from pork and bacon. God bless them. Uh, be, be, because they couldn't properly cook that. And so those are the civil laws. And on top of the civil laws, there are the moral laws, things that are morally good or morally bad. Like an example of a moral law found in the Bible is thou shalt not murder. That is morally evil. That is a morally bad when someone murders another human being. Murder is wrong. No matter what society you go into, everyone will agree that yes, murder is bad. That is morally bad. And the same applies for moral laws of lying, 
of stealing, of cheating, of committing adultery, and, and so much more. There, there's many different moral laws found in uh, the Old Testament. And so these were the set of rules, both the civil laws and the moral laws, that the Israelites followed for about 1,500 years. As Moses came, came onto the scene around uh, 1500 BC, and for about 1500 years, they followed the 613 rules to a T. It's a long time. Now, at the end of those 1500 years, a man named Jesus arrived onto the scene. And now Jesus, he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the chosen one of God that the Jews have been waiting thousands of years for. The person who is going to save them. And this man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he was the man written about in the books of the law, in the books of history, in the books of prophecy as well. And this man, Jesus, he turned everything upside down. He radicalized the religion uh, of the Jews. Now, Jesus, he himself will claim that he did not come to, even though he radicalized everything, he turned everything upside down, he himself claims that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't, he didn't come to abolish these 613 rules that the Jews uh, were, were mandated to follow or any of the, the Jewish elements before him, but rather Jesus sought to fulfill the law. And these are the, the exact words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Is that what exactly does it mean for Jesus to come and fulfill the law, the law and the prophets? Well, John Piper, uh, I enjoyed an article reading by John Piper. He, he kind of breaks down this process of the law being fulfilled. And he provides a couple of different examples. First example is in the Old Testament, the people offered blood sacrifices to God. So they sacrificed animals to God in the Old Testament. But now, after Jesus, according to Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 10, it reads, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So now we no longer have to partake in the blood sacrifices of these animals because Jesus served at that sacrifice once for all. He was the fulfillment of that law. In the Old Testament, the priesthood stood between God and mankind. So, so people, they couldn't really, they couldn't really uh, communicate with God directly. Instead, they would communicate through a priest or a prophet or someone who then would communicate to God. This is a role that Moses played. This is a role that the Levites, the priests played for the Israelites. Well, now, in the 21st century, now Jesus has opened the door. The curtain has been torn and we can access God directly. That is is incredible. Jesus fulfilled that portion of the law of the priests serving kind of as the mediator between God and mankind. In the Old Testament, the physical temple that the people built is served as a geographic center of worship, as the inner room resembled the presence of God. Well, now here in the 21st century, we worship God any and everywhere. As when Jesus was sacrificed, as Jesus was crucified on the cross, the curtain was torn, the curtain that separated God's presence from all of us. It was torn from top to bottom. And now we can worship God here in a church building, worship God out at a picnic shelter, worship God out at the park, at our homes, wherever it may be. The door has been opened. The curtain has been torn. Another example in the Old Testament, the ethnically rooted Jews abided 
by the civil laws that were directed specifically towards them. But now the people of God are are no longer a unified political body or ethnic group. And so instead, now we have people from every nation choosing to believe in God and his son, Jesus. And so therefore, now we no longer need to abide by these civil laws that were directed specifically to the Jews. As Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, as virtually everything changed with Jesus. And let me tell you, with Jesus comes freedom. With Jesus comes freedom. This freedom that we have access to was one of the constant themes throughout many of Paul's writings that we have access to today. As we are free from the civil laws that the Israelites followed for about 1,500 years. You know, the early Christians, the the early Jews who put their faith in Jesus, they really, really struggled with this. For 1,500 years, their parents, their grandparents, great, 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 great parents, their their great ancestors, they follow these certain set of rules. And now all of a sudden, there's a man named Jesus, the Messiah, and he turns everything upside down. And now no longer do we need to abide by these civil laws, laws like circumcision. (laughs) That was a big law that created a lot of debate in the early church. And we can read about this debate in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Galatians, and we're going to be reading Galatians chapter 5. And so here Paul is writing a letter to uh, the church in Galatia, and uh, he is talking about this issue of circumcision as the church is divided. There's some people who say that if you want to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. There are some Jews who put their faith in Jesus that that said, yes, if you're a Gentile and you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Now, on the other hand, another party, which resembled Paul, said, hey, maybe the civil law of circumcision is no longer necessary. And so in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so Paul here, he tells us that Christ has set us free. He set us free from the Mosaic law. He set us free from this law of Moses that these people must follow every letter to a T. Well, Christ has set us free. And again, this was a huge issue for the Jews. As they were doing this time and time again, they were doing this all their lives. And now all of a sudden, through Jesus, we have freedom. We have freedom. And so the early church, they ultimately decided that people no longer needed to follow circumcision. That was a radical, radical decision that the early church made. 
But Paul says that circumcision, this law found in the Old Testament, that, that the Israelite baby boys, they need to be circumcised on the eighth day that they were born. Paul says that this law is meaningless. It'll be of no advantage to you if you keep this law of circumcision. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Those are powerful words by Paul. And so Paul continues in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So no longer do we need to follow the strict law of circumcision. If you don't follow that, then you're doomed. But now, now what counts is faith. And faith working through love. Where we have a faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. And we express that faith through love. Through loving God. Through loving his creation. Through loving the, the people that, that we are surrounded by. That's how we express our faith. As we're saved by grace, not by the law, but by grace. And we accept that grace through faith. And so if we jump down to, to verse 13 of uh, Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul says, hey, listen, guys, you've been called to freedom. You are free now through Christ. Now, with that freedom, do not use it as an opportunity to, to, to take in the desires of our flesh, the, 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 the desires of sin, the temptations that we have. But rather with this freedom that we have, use it as an opportunity to love and serve one another. For the whole law, Paul said the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The words of Paul, you can summarize these 613 uh, laws into you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that is what it is about today as we have that freedom. The law is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill that law as he fulfilled uh, the, the sacrificial system. He fulfilled the, the priesthood. He fulfilled the temple portion. He is the fulfillment of the law. And so even though we have this freedom from the law, we still have a responsibility to serve one another in love. We're to use this freedom that we have for good. This freedom where we don't have to necessarily follow to a T these laws of circumcision, these laws of these different festivals and uh, the sacrifices and the priesthood. But now we have a freedom to love. And to take on the, the, these moral laws, the, these laws like, yeah, we, we shouldn't murder. Je Jesus, he reaffirms that in the New Testament. You know, there's laws against adultery. Jesus reaffirms that in the New Testament and, and cheating and lying and, and, and all these moral laws. They're still bad things. God doesn't change. God is unchanging. And these moral laws, which were once bad, they are still bad today. But these civil laws, the other part of the law, I think Jesus has set us free from that. As we have freedom in Christ. 
And that is something that the early church struggled a lot with as Jesus was turning their world upside down. And so about 250 years ago, our nation was free from the British rule. Our country had to use that opportunity for good. You know, when we had this freedom, some of the rules were intact and some new rules were formed. But about 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us freedom from the law of Moses and the civil laws of the law of Moses. And with this freedom means we no longer have to fully abide by the law of the Old Testament. But now we have the freedom to love one another and to serve one another. And now again, some of these New Testament laws or these Old Testament laws, they were reaffirmed in the New Testament. And we talked about that. And Jesus reaffirmed these moral laws. But now that we have freedom, my question to you is what are you going to do with that freedom? What are you going to do with the freedom that Christ has given to you? Because we have a choice to make. We have a choice. We can either A, we can use our freedom to indulge in our sinful desires, or we can use this freedom that Christ has granted to each and every one of us to use it to express our faith through love and obedience and following the example that Jesus has set before each and every one of us. And so that is a decision that each and every one of us has to make today, is what are we going to do with the freedom that Christ has given to each and every one of us because we have a decision to make. And so I encourage you today and the rest of the week, as you remember, you celebrate Independence Day, the day in which uh, Americans celebrate our independence from the British rule. I encourage you to let it serve as a reminder of the freedom that we have as Christians that was granted to us through Jesus Christ. And let us use this freedom that we have as an opportunity to love one another and to serve one another and to put our faith in God and Jesus and express that faith through love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the freedom that you've given to us as your children. Father, I pray that each and every one of us, we use this freedom as an opportunity to do good, to, to do good to you and to your son and to the people of this world. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this freedom that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.